Welcome back, everybody. I hope your journey to turn those dreams into reality is a good one. And you've kicked a few goals this week. We've achieved uh, some of those small wins. One of the really important elements I've certainly learned on my pathway to living, I guess, a life on my terms and others, and we've heard it on a number of episodes on the podcast, is the importance of others. And the importance not only of what others can do in service to you, but equally what you're able to do in service to others, because life is not an independent or individual endeavor. And if you look back through history, anyone that tried to do anything by themselves that was a worthy or challenging cause probably didn't make it at the end of the day. To help us on that journey and to really understand how to appreciate those around us and how to demonstrate and give appreciation as well as receive it is psychologist and author of a book that has been revised once as almost in its third revision in as many years. Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn what it takes to turn your dream into reality. Don't be afraid to dream big. But remember, dreams without gold are just dreams. This is The Few with Boo. Dr. Paul White, thank you so much for joining me on The Few today. I really appreciate you, you taking the time and being generous. My pleasure. I'm glad to be with you. So, Paul, quick question. And really, the obvious starting point is, do people fail to show appreciation? If there's a practice and you help people on their journey to show, that must mean that, by and large, are we seeing an absence? Has it got worse? Do we not appreciate those around us? I don't know if it's gotten worse, but the need is huge. <laughs> and as you can tell from just the messages that we get from people in the workplace, that they don't feel valued, they don't feel appreciated. And there's a lot of behavioral and organizational results of that. I mean, one study shows that 79% of the people who leave a job voluntarily cite a lack of appreciation as one of the major reasons that they leave. And MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, is last year published a study about the great resignation that happened here in the States, at least, that cultural issues and specifically a lack of appreciation was three more times likely to predict people leaving than compensation issues. So it, it seems to be important to people and it impacts the businesses and companies and organizations if they don't pay attention to it. So there must have been a point in your life, Paul, where a light bulb illuminated above your head and you thought, or you observed the behaviors in the workplace where this lack of appreciation was obvious. What was it about your personal journey that made you realize that helping people demonstrate value towards each other is absolutely critical to living a full life and also running a successful growing business? Yeah, so I grew up in the context of a family-owned business outside of Kansas City in the middle of the U.S. And as a result, in the middle of my career, I was approached by business consultants who worked with successful family businesses and dealing with business succession issues. And I was dealing with the family issues intertwined with those because there's a lot of them and how to be fair to people who aren't in the business and all that. And I was working with a business in North Carolina and I was talking to the father who's the CEO and I said, you know, how's this succession plan going? He says, it's going well, my son's stepping up. I think it's going to go fine. And I walk across the hall, talk to the son, ask him the same question. And he says, this is a disaster. It's not going to work. I can't ever please my dad. 
And so at the same time, my wife and I were reading the five love languages, which Dr. Chapman wrote about personal relationships. And it's a great book. It's sold 25 million copies. And I thought, you know, maybe this concept of showing love or whatever the equivalent is in the workplace could be applied. And so I pursued Dr. Chapman for a year and finally got to meet with him. And he agreed to work with me on this project. And so we dialogued and sort of thought appreciation was the most equivalent concept in the workplace and then proceeded to, and this instantly uh, sort of translate the five love languages into uh, what it looks like in the workplace. And what are they? The five love languages is, was a fairly profound book, wasn't it? And yeah. profound for a lot of people and just having some simple concepts to connect with your family members or your partner. Do they translate directly across to the workplace or how do you define them? The same in name as the five love languages, but they differ in what they look like. So words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, tangible gifts, and even physical touch. And so, yeah, I can give you a little example of each if you'd like. Yeah, let's start with physical touch because that seems to be something that's <laughs> almost like, whoa, in the workplace, in today's workplace, my goodness, <laughs> danger, danger. It's true. Dr. Chapman and I dialogued about it and talked to people and they said, well, we can see it, but it feels sort of weird and need to be careful. But he had studied anthropology and he was really strong. And I agree with him that we didn't want to advocate a touchless society, even in the workplace, because it's well known that appropriate physical touch can be deeply meaningful and even healing in the appropriate context and relationship. And secondly, it occurs. And what we found is that it's largely spontaneous celebration. Right? It's a high five when you finish a project. It's a fist bump when you solve a problem, maybe a congratulatory handshake. And cross-culturally, because our book's been translated in 25 languages and our assessments in seven or eight, cross-culturally, a pat on the back has been found to be the most appropriate way of showing appreciation. But there's some cultures that are far more warm to it, if you will. Our friends in Southern Europe, the Spaniards and the Greeks and uh, Portuguese are more physical as are the Hispanics in the United States, whereas Northern Europeans, the Germans, Norwegians, and so forth, they have some struggles with it. And then in Asia, like in Japan, you really, the only appropriate physical touch would be a handshake. So you have to be aware of cultural differences. And the other part is that it's the recipient who determines what's appropriate, right? I mean, I've had people come and say, I need to give you a hug. And I'm like, well, your need doesn't mean I'm willing to take it. So you have to go with what the recipient's willing to yeah, well, look, asking for permission in anything, right? I mean, that's you can scale that consent conversation all the way up to uh, sexual intimacy, but I think that's important as well. And that, I mean, that's a, another way of showing appreciation, I guess, is respecting someone's boundaries and what they're comfortable with. I mean, as for the Germans, they just created schnapps, right? I think that's uh, how they bond an, an Oktoberfest. <laughs> okay, so touch is important. There's a very visceral element to human touch, be it anywhere. And I know in, in British culture, maybe American, Australian culture, it's that rough and tumble kind of touch, or has historically been that kind of very masculine touch. How do you scale that out when you start to look at the acceptance of different genders, you know, sexualities? I mean, how do you, let's just say I'm a CEO of a company, I've read your book, I agree, I think touch is great in the workplace. How do I articulate it to everyone in the team in a way that everyone feels safe? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I think it's helpful to keep it in context. So we have an online assessment that we created that over 375,000 people have taken to date. And so we have a pretty good database and physical touch is actually less than 1% of the population. So it's not a high frequency kind of occurrence. 
it's mainly educating people about, you know, cultural differences, like in the United States, in the South, they're a little more physical. They make you give side hugs in New York and New Jersey. This is what physical touch looks like there. It's just, Hey, you know, just sort of a nod across the room. Right. So you have to be aware of those. So there's an education and awareness. And then we acknowledge that, but we really focus on the others because that's where, you know, obviously the vast majority of people lie. Words of affirmation. I was working with an organization, a couple of organizations, actually. What I was really fascinated by, and I'm interested to get your opinion on this, is what I felt was like manufactured affirmation in terms of this concept of recognition points. And as a team or an organization, you could basically go into an app and give someone a recognition point. It wasn't even like you would speak to them. It was like a remote acknowledgement of their effort. I mean, is that a word of affirmation? What does it actually look like? Well, yeah, that's, I can't think of a better word than a bastardization of it. So it's a distortion of it. In fact, I just, this afternoon, I got through writing a blog on peer to peer recognition within platforms and all that. And it's sort of a nice nod to it, but it really doesn't work. Words of affirmation are words that are affirming, right? that we affirm the value and what we appreciate about somebody. And a difference between a sort of manufactured compliment, if you will, or recognition, and one that's perceived as genuine is the specificity. That the more specific you are about, hey, John, thanks for staying late and cleaning up the conference room so that tomorrow we know that we're good to go when we have that meeting early on. That's very specific versus in fact, we've got 95,000 people on our newsletter list and we'll do polls and we ask, what don't you like to hear? And one of the main things people don't like to hear is good job because it's generic. It doesn't mean anything. You can say it to anybody. You can say it to your dog. It doesn't take any thought, you know, and so you've got to be specific about it. And that's where words are important. And an additional piece about that is talking about a person's character, right? So there's a difference between hey, thanks for getting your reports to me on time, which is good, and saying, hey, Becky, I just really appreciate how dependable you are. Because when you talk about a person's character, that's behavior over time, different settings with different people, and that really will grab a person's heart for whom words is important. I have an opinion in life that acts of service just generally, that the person that benefits from the acts of service is actually the person giving the service more than the person receiving it. Again, in the workplace, what do acts of services look like? Is this where some may say, oh, look, that's not my job or the sink's dirty and it's like, well, I don't clean the sink. I'm too good for that. How do acts of services manifest in the, in the workplace? Yeah, so acts of service, it's not rescuing a low-performing colleague, first of all, because sometimes people think, okay, I'm always rescuing them. It's not that. Probably small things that are just helping them in today or this week get things done. Two sort of common contexts. One, in a business setting, it's when you're working on a project uh, that's time limited and you're banging away on it. You've got to work hard, long hours. What's something somebody can do to help make that go better? And it could be that they're going to answer your emails or your phone so you can stay focused on the project. It could be bringing in some dinner for you so you can work over dinner. It could be that you delegate part of it and, and they take a part of the project and help you out or some clerical work, just simple stuff that you don't need to do, but it needs to be done. That's one context. In clinical settings like hospitals and where you're providing services, it's when a whole bunch of patients show up all at once and you are swamped. What's something somebody can do to help out to make that flow better? And uh, I didn't mention on words, it's about 45% of the population choose words. So it's a big group, but it's less than half. 
of all employees. So if you only use words, you're missing half of your employees. And acts of service is about 21%. So one out of every five people. And they sort of live by the mantra, don't tell me you care or support me, show me, you know, or words are cheap. So if you're just talking to them all the time and don't ever help them out, that's probably not going to go well. I heard somewhere that men are more inclined towards active service as a way of demonstrating love or affirmation, I guess, appreciation. Is there truth in terms of genders around these acts as well? You know, it's been a fascinating study and we have done research over time, continue that there's virtually no gender difference in any of the languages of how frequently people choose them. They're almost exactly the same. Now, what's different is the specific actions that are desired by. And in fact, we found that in our assessment, just finding out a person's preferred appreciation language is fine, but it's not really sufficient because you need to know the specific actions because especially in acts of service, you need to know what's going to be helpful to them as opposed to just saying, you know, their desk looks a wreck and they need some help with organization. You don't want to dive in to that. You need to find out, you know, what would be helpful. So I, I guess the simple solution to that is if you want to perform an active service for someone, it's not to assume what they need help with. It's to ask what they need help with, or what can I do for you? The problem with that is that at least in the States, and I think it would be true in Australia, that the people's first response, I mean, if you say, hey, you know, is there something I could do to help? The first response is, no, I'm good. You know, I'm okay. And so you have to push through that. Or a, a better way to approach it is to say, hey, I've got some extra time here, free, and I know you're pushing hard on this. What would be helpful that I could do that would be help to you? So it's instead of a yes, no, do you want help? It's like, what would be helpful? And they're more likely to let you know. I guess most people want to be a decent person and they want to show appreciation and they want to help people, but what gets in the way? Like what's happening day to day that stops people from doing this? That's a deep question, actually. There's lots of things. You know, part of it is we're focused on what we need to do and we tend to have an individualistic perspective on it versus understanding how helping teammate really helps us as a group. And there's the time pressure that occurs in the workplace. I find that a lot of supervisors and managers actually increase stress by setting artificial time deadlines that are shorter than they need to be, that they say, you know, they need it Wednesday. They say, I really need it by Monday. Well, that creates stress for the person. And then that just sort of spreads around. Sometimes you're not sure what to do or how to do it in the way that they want. And so it takes, and this is true for appreciation. We believe that appreciation is a person to person. It's not organizationally driven. It's not according to the org chart, anybody can show appreciation to one another. And so it requires some relationship. I've been asked by some multinational large corporations to help them with appreciation with virtual teams that have never met. And I said, I'm not sure this is going to work. And for the first trial, it didn't. We're learning some things that, and there's actually some new neuroscience that comes out that's showing that face-to-face in-person interaction is qualitatively different than face-to-face, you know, virtual. And so really encouraging virtual teams to get together at least once a year, if not a couple of times a year to spend time to get together because you get to know people, you see them in different settings and trying to communicate appreciation outside of a relationship just feels weird and it feels pretty artificial, I think. Yeah, I think that whole remote working environment, we probably haven't felt the real 
ongoing effects of that yet. I think we see it in terms of busyness and people just getting lost in work and losing that ability to, you, know, you don't see body language, for example, right? Like when you're working remotely, you can't see any of those subconscious cues. So there's a love language. The third love language, like they say, is gifts, which could probably again, you know, in the workplace be potentially dangerous territory. Hi, it's Boo here. If you're enjoying these episodes of The Few, please show your support by leaving a review. It costs you nothing, and the more reviews we have, the better guests we can reach out and bring onto the show to help you close the gap between what you want and where you are today even faster and help you on your journey to become one of the few too. What does a gift look like in the office? Yeah, so we define it. It's not bonuses. It's not raises. It's not winning, you know, or earning a big vacation. It's really small things that show that you're getting to know the other person. It's like bringing in your favorite cup of coffee for you in the morning or tea, you know, or bringing in a snack that you know that they like. Or it could be you see a magazine about their favorite sports team and you pick that up and give that to them and say, hey, you know, I know you like the black shirts or whomever it might be. And so, and it can be virtual too. It's really interesting that gifts in this context, it's not related to how much money you spend because in this case, it is the thought that counts. It's that you're getting to know the person. And so let's say you have a colleague that's gonna coach rugby for the first time for their son. And so you find a website that has some training exercises, you know, to use for his coaching and say, Hey, I thought you might enjoy this. Or if somebody's starting a garden and you, and you find a resource that way. So it's just small things like that. It's the personal nature that's really important. And so gift giving in the workplace is just done stupidly generally. I mean, it's like in the States, there's a lot of gifts given from one company to another at Christmas time and you get a fruit basket, yada, yada. Yeah. It means nothing to anybody, right? It needs to be person to person. If you want to give a gift, it's actually from you to the person at, that you relate to at that job. And also some research has shown that the most effective gift is given when it's least expected. So wait until late January or February to give a gift, not at the holiday, right? And it's going to have more impact. So, and that's 7% of the workforce. And what's interesting is most employee recognition and reward programs really focus on this, you know, tangible gift and literally billions of dollars are wasted by companies just throwing out gifts that don't really have much impact, even though it's a small percentage, because people say, you know, if I never hear anything, if you never stop, I see how I'm doing or help me out when I need help, gift doesn't feel like much, especially if the company's paying for it. But if you can pair a gift with one of their other languages, if it's personal, they can really have a nice impact. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a gift that's the same as the other 1000 company embossed pens isn't really a gift, right? It's just a token effort to, that's a bit of an issue, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's almost like there's an acknowledgement that organizations and leaders need to do this, but it's done in a very superficial way, isn't it? And then people wonder why it doesn't work. And then people get frustrated. And I was talking to a CEO the other day and he's like, and I'm interested to get your thoughts on this. He says, all, all my people want is more. No matter what I give them, no matter how much we give them, there's, they always want more. Is that the fact that people just are never happy and they want more? Or is, are they just not giving the right things? I think it's a combination of, could be a combination of both. But clearly, we know that people, even though there's all kinds of employee recognition programs and so forth, one study showed that 65% of all North Americans in the US and Canada said they haven't received any recognition in the past year. And I'm like, how could that be? Well, the key word is they haven't received it. It's like, we're doing things, but it doesn't really get to them. It's sort of like sending 
a gift via the mail and it doesn't show up, you send it, you met well, but they didn't receive it. And so I think a lot of time leaders and organizations are doing things and they're just sort of running on this wheel versus stopping. And in fact, one of the things I tell teams when we're training them is I'm not here to create another to-do list for you. You've already got at least two, one regular one, and then, you know, a project one. you don't need a recognition or appreciation list. What I'm here to do is help teach you how to show appreciation in a way that you're either almost doing or doing that needs to be tweaked a little bit. And we want to get the right action in the right language. It doesn't take much and it's not, doesn't have to be all the time. You don't have to throw a party and say, Hey, Shelly showed up today. Yeah. You know, I mean, it really can have a big impact with when you get the right message and action. It's interesting. Is it when you look at those documentaries or series on startups like WeWork and there's just always events and free stuff and you see that it very much speaks to that crowd, which is a 20 something crowd that don't have family and kids and they're just looking for exciting, fun times. And that to me seems like examples where the five languages are absolutely nailing it culturally, where it might get a little bit more difficult is in more of these established companies where you're running from low 20 year old graduates all the way up to 60 year old executives and everyone's kind of trying to pull in the same way. So I presume some thought needs to be put into that as well, right? The level or the age of the Yeah, we've done research on looking at different levels or what different generations value as far as appreciation. And one clear trend is that the younger the employee, especially 40 and under, the more likely they are to value quality time. Now, it's still words is, is number one for almost everybody, except in a very couple of specific settings, but quality time for the general population is about 25%. So one out of every four. For younger employees in their 20s, it's up to 35%, right? And then if you look at older employees, 60 and above, that, you know, what do we do for people that, you know, to honor them when they're retiring and they reach some goal or whatever? We give them something, right? Gifts <laughs> is only 2% of the older generations, what they want. What they want is they would like some personal message to know how they've impacted other people. You know, it's not just, don't just, hey, you're a great guy in service. It's like, you know, I saw you model this kind of leadership of listening or whatever. And so we missed the boat partly out of this drive to scale everything up versus understanding that, yeah, we have to do some things as big groups, but Ultimately, we're all individuals and we're people. That's really our message is that employees are people and we have value as people beyond just performance. And recognition programs tend to focus on performance and miss a, a big group that are great people, but you know they aren't your top performers necessarily. Yeah, and there's you know a degree of dysfunction with high-performing people, isn't there? I mean, if you're high-performing in the workplace, you're typically not performing in other elements of your life. There's no miracle human being, is there? And that would make sense, I guess, because as you get older and you start to have done everything and seen everything, you start to value giving back. That feels more purposeful than just doing the same thing for the 30th year in a row. Whereas when we're younger, it's all about us, it's all about me. I go, and that's, you know, you just don't have the awareness, do you? You're just a sponge. So that, that's a really neat way of kind of articulating the different expressions of the love language. And you mentioned there the concept of quality time and the importance for that for the younger generation. 
gosh, it's almost like we had an abundance of quality time during COVID with lockdown. What does quality time mean in a relationship? It's obviously going out on a date together, creating time and space, sitting on the couch, just being present with each other. We can't go and sit on the beanbag together in the in the company lounge, yeah? Um, <laughs> it's actually, there's a generational difference on what quality time means to people in the workplace. In past days, it meant time with your supervisor or manager. In fact, there was a saying, people don't leave a job, they leave a manager, right? And that's less true than it used to be. Still for a number of people, and especially older employees, having individual sort of face-to-face -face time, what we would call focused attention of, you know, getting some individual time to listen, share observations, get input is highly valued by some. But for younger employees, it's more about time with peers and colleagues. In fact, I tell leaders, especially older leaders, just because you have a team member who has quality time as their language doesn't mean they want time with you. You may be great, you may be wonderful, but I've had enough people say, I don't want time with my supervisor. They're pretty intense, I'm sort of shy, but I wanna go out to lunch or out after work with my friends or go to a sporting event. So it's more about that collegial aspect for most younger employees. It's fascinating, isn't it? In terms of even 20 years ago, when you were a leader or a supervisor, you had all this extra knowledge that the people working for you didn't have. And it sort of flipped on its head now. It's like the connected generation has so much more information and context to what they do each and every day that it presents these. It does challenge that kind of patriarchal, hierarchical type of mindset. So if, if I was working, let's just say I'm a leader, I've come into an organization and the culture is clearly toxic. Like the people aren't talking to each other. It's deathly quiet as you walk around through the office. What are some of the cues to realize that is some organization so toxic, there's nothing you can do about it? Or can every toxic environment be resolved? In your mind, what does a toxic environment look like and how do we get out of it? Yeah. So interestingly, initially when I was going out and speaking and training on appreciation, at breaks and afterwards, people would come up and tell me nasty stories about their workplace or what a jerk their boss was. And it just kept coming at me. And so I wound up, we did research on toxic workplaces and wrote a book about it and have some training about it and found that it really has three key components, uh, largely. One is a sick system, meaning that just the way this company or organization is structured it doesn't work right. And you think in the US, at least hospitals, government agencies, colleges and universities, they have multiple reporting relationships. So it's hard to have sort of hold people accountable. There's indirect communication versus direct communication. And so a sick system is part of it. A toxic leader is part of it. And the core aspect of a toxic leader is that they're all about themselves. I mean, they use people and resources for their goals and you've got to watch out because they don't care about you. And then the third part are dysfunctional colleagues, which are people who make excuses, blame other people. They're good at creating conflict sort of as a smoke screen, and they take credit for things that they didn't do and so forth. And if you get the combination of that, you know, it's pretty nasty. And toxic workplace by definition is unhealthy. I mean, it starts to wear away at your health. You're not sleeping well, you're worrying a lot. You're having physical issues. You're starting to be emotionally reactive and People don't want to, your family doesn't want to be around you, you know? And so those are the kinds of things. Now, can you turn it around? Yes, maybe sometimes. I hold the belief, at least that a true toxic leader, somebody that's just purely about themselves, you can't fix. You've got to get rid of them because they just create a toxic 
environment around them. And they sort of have a revolving door of people that just keep going and getting fired and all that. Yeah. Cause that's the interesting, I mean, if you're a manager and you've got one of those people, how to tell the difference, whether someone can be rehabilitated or not, and how long do you try and rehabilitate them? How much damage do you incur until you come to the conclusion? Actually, this person's a sociopath. We can't have them. Yeah, exactly. It's a tough call. And I would say most people hang on too long that they give too many chances. And part of it is a good toxic leader, if you will, is they look good initially. I mean, they're skilled, they're socially skilled, they're smooth. But after a while, you see that, oh man, pay attention to the signs. And a message, a key message, if you are working in an unhealthy workplace is you need to take care of yourself. Do your job. Don't get sucked into the toxicity and trying to prove things, whatever, because then if you're not doing your work, you're at risk for getting booted and you've got to pay attention to your health, get an objective, somebody that you trust their judgment, bounce ideas off them. Cause when you're in a toxic workplace, it's like being in a, a room with fumes, you start to get foggy and you're not thinking right and say, well, I didn't think this was ethical to do this, but they're saying it is. And so you've got to get somebody that, who's thinking more clearly and get their feedback. Now, that's really great advice. So you have a practice appreciation at work, which provides tools, resources, coaching for organizations to demonstrate their appreciation in a more proactive way. And it's, it obviously has a more profound impact than just showing appreciation, right? There's downstream effects, it lifts the revenue line, improves profit margins, efficiencies, productivity. But if I was listening to this podcast and I was thinking, you know what? Yeah, you're right. I don't, I don't know whether we do appreciation that well. What would I do? How do I start my journey? Yeah, so our sort of mothership website is appreciationatwork.com. And it's the word at, not the at side, but appreciateatwork.com. And there's all kinds of resources. You know, you have the book. The book is an easy read. It might be a nice gift for someone, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then we have an online assessment. And there's a code that comes with the book. But there's also we've developed more expanded and specialty codes for medical settings, for schools, government, and all that kind of thing. And so start to explore and see and learn the difference between appreciation and recognition and then how to show appreciation. And I would just say, start somewhere with somebody. I mean, it's easy to sort of think about it theoretically and structure stuff. And I work with engineers and computer guys that they want to do Gantt charts and spreadsheets. And it's just like, dude, just, yeah. <laughs> just go tell somebody that you value them, you know? And so that's a, a starting point is to think about somebody that, you work with that if they didn't do what they did, your daily work would be a lot tougher, right? And if you have a key team member that you don't want to lose, you need to make sure because otherwise they may be, you know, sort of on the trading block looking around. And the third group is just people that are discouraged that they're working hard on a project. It's not working well and appreciation can be very encouraging to people. So yeah, and we have, I grew up in the not-for-profit social service world professionally and people give a lot. There's not a lot of money for training. So it was important to me to create low cost training materials. And so we've done that and have an online train the trainer program that we have a number of people in Australia that have gone through it as well as New Zealand. And then they can take that. It gives them access to training resources of videos and handouts and facilitators got that they can take groups and teams at their workplace through to learn how to communicate it. And it's really important to understand that it's not just for supervisors and managers, but it's for colleagues to learn how to show appreciation to one another. That's where the real power is. It's the simple things that have the profound impact, isn't it? And it's really what you're talking about here conceptually is not very difficult. I mean, it's five languages. 
there's no perfect system, but it's perfect enough to get the ball rolling. And as you go through life, I guess you're forever learning what appreciation looks like to others, but the mindfulness of being aware of it is fantastic. Dr. Paul White, thank you so much for joining me on The Few. It was just a wonderful nuance to explore the difference between appreciation and recognition and being able to pull apart from that performance-based culture of goals and recognition and just generally be aware of others and to really be cognizant of what good looks like for them and the style that they feel appreciate. If you're looking for more information, appreciationatwork.com is the primary resource to reach out Paul and his team. And you can also buy the book online as well as Amazon and any other great retailer. So Paul, thanks again so much for being generous with your time and helping us be better versions of ourselves. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Take care. Well, that wraps another episode of The Few. And I'd like to thank our partners without whom this episode wouldn't be possible. Firstly, Ode Management, an organization that brings world-class speakers into your event or organization to make a profound impact on your people to deliver the results that you want. And Afterburner, real-life fighter pilots, a team of men and women who for the past 25 years have helped organizations surpass their expectations, learning the tips and tricks fighter pilots use to win 98% of the time. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast, The Few with Boo, or our YouTube channel. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing the stories of these remarkable people with you. I hope that helps you keep the dream alive, but more importantly, equips you with a few ideas of how to turn those dreams into reality to help you become one of the few too.